0: Welcome to Understand Suicide, the
1: podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paula has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized
0: of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide: Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon.
1: welcome again to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today, my guest is Jim Miller. He's actually part of the Stability Network. I heard, I don't know, Jim, if you listen to, the, to my interview with Toffer Jerome, He's part of the, yeah, he's part of the same uh, initiative. And I just, and he was the one actually introduced me to the Stability Network. And then I contacted you guys and said, listen, I, I explained what I did. And, and many of you are going to have a kind of a series of interviews with some of the leaders of the Stability Network. And I just want to introduce it quickly. It was founded around 2011 by someone called Catherine Switz. She struggled with mental illness from what I read. And I believe that she mentions that the doctor told him, uh, we don't know if you're going to function with this condition. And she decided after reading books, and one of the, one of the books was Jay Jamison's, um, I can't remember, can you remember The Unquiet, Unquiet Mind. I don't know if you've read that, but she talks about her struggle with mental illness and then she's, she's bipolar. And she said, no, it's not going to happen to me. And then she started talking to some people about her struggles. And then she decided to create this, what she calls the stability network, which you are a part of. And what they do is, I'm actually going to read their mission statement we are dedicated to making positive stories about mental health more plentiful than stories of fear and negativity. So very straightforward. And this is what people like you do. You come speak publicly about your struggles. In your case, it was the death of your father in 1992. You were, was it 22 at the time, Jim? Well, welcome, welcome to the podcast, first of all. And thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story.
0: Thanks, Paula. Thanks very much. Yeah, this is my first outing, actually, with the Disability Network. But I was introduced to, I joined a similar sort of group back in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. And and then I met Catherine at an event um, that was organized by by this UK group. And I've signed up. And this is my first uh, first outing. And, oh, uh,
1: good, good. So I'm I'm the lucky one to have you first, huh?
0: I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Yes. In
1: in some of you, uh, some of you, it, it's different stories. Some share stories of loss, suicide loss. Some share stories of suicide ideation. Some share stories of multiple. We're going to have someone. Uh, within the f- next few weeks, we're going to, I'm going to publish uh, an interview with someone who had like multiple, I mean, the moment when she wrote to me all the diagnosis she had over her life. I mean, when you think of a mental illness, she had it. It's one of those cases that you look at, it's so, my goodness, it's so many mistakes have been made with this woman. But anyway, some of them, that's what they shared their struggle with mental illness and treatments and everything. But I love that you are here with us because you're going to talk about something that I am familiar with, losing a father to suicide. And you were so young. You were 22 at the time. Was that it? That's
0: right. I was. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what happened? Tell us a little bit about your father first.
0: Well, I mean, what happened? It's. There's a whole lifetime of ingredients that go into a decision that he may or may not have really wanted to take. At the end of the day, it may have just been a mistake. Um, but he, you know, he was born into a, into a wealthy kind of Midlands family. Um, there was a family business that had been built up over numerous generations. Um, I think the the early kind of pioneers of of the family they were German and they 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 were hardworking and industrious and. Um, and I think there was a bit of a moral decline after a couple of generations and there was probably some alcoholism creeping into the family and uh, the business became more of a leisure activity. And my dad inherited the business and he, I, you know, I don't think he was really up to the job, basically, of um, adapting to the to the environment. And he had relationship issues. Um, he'd been through a divorce from his first, you know, his first uh, first wife. I've got two elder half sisters from from that marriage, 10 and 12 years older than me. And yeah, he was going through, uh, having relationship problems with my mother um, at the time that it happened. You know, I think there was some mental health issues thrown in there as well as a result of all of the stress. He was certainly struggling with his sleep. And I think some of his thinking was becoming quite confused. And, you know, he was under a lot of pressure pressure and stress. his children had grown up. You know, my, I, I was 22. My younger sister was 20. So, I guess he felt that that you know that his children were no longer dependents in the same way. There was uh, mm. less of a need to be there for them in some way. And then the last straw was that the family dog. He was on his own in in Spain. Um, you know, his family were all off living their own lives. His, his wife had, had left him, mm-hmm. and um, and the family dog died, and that was the last straw. And that was when. That was when he died. Um, yeah,
1: uh, a lot. It just sounds like a lot, a lot of losses, right?
0: I think so, and I, and I don't think he was equipped to deal with them really. I mean, he'd he'd struggled with alcoholism earlier in his life. Um, he'd stopped drinking, but uh, that was. Uh, I don't think he'd really dealt with the underlying emotional issues. He just stopped mm. drinking. He had liver cirrhosis and was was yeah. You know, yeah. Close to yeah. And you know this—he'd grown up. I mean, he was—he he was a teenager during the war, and he grew up in, in a family where there wasn't a lot of emotional nurturing. Really, he, he was brought up by nannies. He was sent to boarding school when he was eight. Wow. You know, quite scared of his mother, really. Who was, she was a tremendously strong and very powerful woman, Um, and we we, we all loved her very much. She died at 104, and she was you know wow. kind of a real trooper and matriarch of the family. But from a a, a nurturing point of view she wasn't the kind of woman who she wouldn't give you a hug or um or even really listen um to, to i don't think so i i think he i don't think he grew up with the right kind of love really and you know he i think he he wasn't really able to take care of himself on a deep level he needed a wife to take care of him and when when my mother left him i think that was that way i don't think he could deal with that again you know the loss of a mother the loss of a first wife now the loss of a second Wife and never really having, having learned to properly look out for himself. I remember when I went to stay with him before in the Easter before he died in the in the early May, and he was trying really hard to look after himself. He he'd cooked himself some br- some sprouts, some Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> and we certainly had a bowl of Brussels sprouts each, um, and you know it was kind of that was it. That was the that, whole meal. That was it. Yeah, I mean up until then he you know if, if my mum had gone away for a week or so, she would cook all the meals and leave them for him in the freezer, and he, you know. So he'd always been taken care of in a way. And he'd always been, I think he needed mothering. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think there was an abandonment thing there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there was, I think financially he was suffering as well. And, you know, and then I, I believe he got into sort of a downward spiral. I mean, he went to see GPs who didn't really help him. They just gave him medication, or well, what they called medication. I mean, sleep, mm-hmm. very strong sleeping pills to try and help him get sleep but you know so yeah that, that's that's it really that that's mm-hmm. what happened it's it's uh it's sad yeah he'd been talking about moving to the south of France and he thought people would visit him there which is why he said that he'd like to to go there but I think I think he was just he was very desperate and also he was a very dignified man and he was a man with a lot of integrity and he was a man who put on a He kind of put on a very strong front in a way of being a certain way, but I think he always found it quite hard to really deal with his emotions. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a shock to hear the news of his death, but in a way, looking back, I can see that he was kind of like a a bubbling cauldron inside, putting on a front, but just not really able to deal with all of these strong feelings
1: yeah and it was too much and as you say now looking back right so now you've had what 30 years since he died was more more or less 30 years but let's go back to when it happened because here you are 22 years old very young and from what you told me you were the the person who was uh, responsible for taking care of the body and you actually saw the scene where he took his life which was I'm sure very traumatic for you. And right after that, you had what you call a psychotic episode. Can we talk a little bit about that? What happened then?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not sure why I went on my own really, but I did. I think I was quite a headstrong and overconfident 22-year-old. I, you know, I was at university and I'd been sent to school when I was eight. And I think I was very confident and always felt that I could deal with things. and. In this case, I I couldn't. It was much more than I was able to deal with. And I guess there were issues in the family after, you know, because my mum had left my dad, his death happened in the the wake of this family breakup and it was all quite fresh. And, you know, I think there were just some very, very strong feelings. It was quite hard to take it all in. And so I went to the the flat where he'd been living and um, they hadn't really tidied up the flat. Properly, and it was upsetting to see some of his personal items, including the uh, the the object that he used to, um, to to kill himself. So it was shocking; it was d- deeply shocking, actually. And I was in shock anyway. And then to see that, I think I had a trauma response um, for a long time afterwards. I was kind of stuck on that moment, and I could see things exactly as they were. I also felt enormous resentment towards the Spanish police for some reason for some time. For but not... Um, of
1: course, because they, they allowed you to go there without tidying up the place, is that it?
0: Yeah, exactly. I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I see it differently now, um, but it affected me at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and then later on, then I went to deal with the undertakers and they suggested that I didn't see the body, which made me think, well, why? And, you know, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I found that a bit upsetting, I think. And also they were, this was in Spain, and they were uh, They were kind of a Colombian family-run undertakers and very rough. And it was just, mm-hmm. it was, it, it, I don't know. But the the whole
1: experience was very traumatic.
0: It was, t- yeah, it was a t- tough experience, yeah. And then my, my grandmother lived down the coast about a two hour drive, and I had to drive down the coast to spend time with, with her um, mm-hmm. before flying back. And that was when i can remember exactly when the you know when the period of mania started basically when i started having when my thinking started going wrong and Mm -hmm. i started thinking that you know not exactly hearing voices but just feeling that what i would normally consider to be my inner guidance you know the kind of my intuition about things and the my thoughts Mm -hmm. were almost becoming there was this sense that my dad was leading me through the whole through every moment of my life I was doing it in concert with my dad as though he was telling me what to do and how to how to deal with it and then before I knew it 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 was uh it kind of extended from my dad to being my dad in heaven and then my dad in heaven was God and then before I knew it I had I was having this kind of almost kind of experience or these messianic delusions about being in touch with with our the father
1: divine. The con- divine. contact yeah. with the divine
0: yeah yeah, which I think was a kind of a stress re- stress response, and that lasted some time and so this was probably this was the beginning of May, and I was in the last year of my un of university sitting my finals in the June time frame, um, so I had to go back to Oxford, where I was studying sit my finals, um, and I wasn't well at all, but this was really before mental health was much of a thing, you know. Of course, I mean,
1: 30 years ago, my goodness. Nobody even just, talked about this.
0: Yeah, and there weren't really, I mean, I didn't even see a doctor at the time. I think my mother and my sister wanted me to see a therapist at the time. Mm. I think they saw someone, but I thought I was fine. And I wasn't fine, <laughs> but I thought I was okay. And I was probably too proud to get help as well. I'm probably frightened of the strength of my feelings. So I didn't get any help. and. Mm. I sat my finals really unwell, really high. I wasn't sleeping at all. I was mm. in this kind of heightened state of, you know, talking very fast and very articulate.
1: Editated, and
0: yeah. You know, all of that stuff going on. And then after my finals, I ended up getting into a new relationship. And the relationship I got into was with someone who had lost her mother to suicide when she was young. Yeah. And she subsequently became my wife, and we've got three children together, and she's now my ex-wife. And then, yeah, probably a few months after that, I went into, a, into more of a kind of depressive phase, I guess, where I lost my energy. I was burnt out from the high, and I probably spent about a year or so, you know, in, in a kind of phase of relatively low mood, exhaustion, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. struggling with, I think, what people would describe as depression.
1: If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or My Name, Paula Fontanelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. So you spent like years and years. Then it was, was like what six, six or seven years?
0: No, no. This was this was this was probably three months of high after my dad okay. died, and then maybe nine months or a year of low mood.
1: Oh, okay. okay. So it was, it was and, and still, and and you didn't share it with anyone. You didn't talk to anyone. No one ever came to you and said, listen, something, you know, maybe you need to see someone. You mentioned your mom and your sister, but did you share with anyone? I mean, didn't I mean, know actually, right?
0: I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea really. And no one else did either. And all of my friends were in their you know, early twenties. And one of the friends I lived with, I remember he's, you know, he said, look, there were some things going on. We were worried about you and you were acting a bit strange, but we just didn't know what to do. And, you know, there was, I think, I, I kept waking up, and I and I was convinced there was an alarm clock going off in the next door house, <laughs> and it was it, it, every morning. I was I was having these kind of, I suppose it was like an auditory hallucination going on, of uh-huh. some sort. But it was just the I was under so much. I, was, I think I was dealing with so many emotions that I couldn't really handle.
1: Yeah, and the course. way it,
0: it the way that I cracked really. Yeah.
1: Did you Did you remember what you felt towards your father?
0: Well, I think it's taken me 30 years to really get in touch with my feelings about my my dad, in a way, because for a long time, I just wasn't, I was totally disassociated from them. I mean, the truth is that I was angry with him. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've had a lot of anger towards him that I haven't been able to express or even access. And it's come out sideways in relationship with other people, you know, authority figures, friends, you know, it's come, it's just come out. I get these clues you know, as as, as I've kind of become more self-aware, it's like, why are you behaving like that, Jim, towards that certain person? And I realise, actually, this is my anger towards my father coming out sideways. Um, And I have to try and put them together and I have to try and think, well, actually, the way that I'm responding to that person, if I can just think about my dad in the context of that relationship, then does that help me access some feelings? And sometimes it really does. In meditation, I can find it really brings up a lot of feelings that... Or otherwise, I don't know, somehow too, maybe it's too threatening or too overwhelming to face directly. Mm -hmm. But that's been my experience. I've experienced nothing but feelings of love for my dad. And I know there's a lot of anger there. And I Mm -hmm. I think I need to get to to that anger, really. Or I think I am getting to that anger now. Because it's
1: too hard, isn't it? It's too hard to be angry at someone who died and to be angry at the father you loved.
0: I don't. I mean, you say it's too hard. I, 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 you must be right because it, it's taken me thirty years, and I'm only starting to, to really do it now, and to really recognize, though, know, those situations where I have an opportunity to tap into that.
1: Mm-hmm. I had
0: the same thing with my mom as well. Did you I blame
1: had, her because, because you mentioned it was right after when she was getting ready to leave? Right, they were getting divorced at the time.
0: I didn't. I guess I I was angry with her but Mm -hmm. I knew that some of that anger was not justifiable and that that it was just in the context of their relationship and it was their business and it it wasn't really right for me to be angry about it I just was angry but it was I was angry unfairly about it Um, but there were also some things that I was angry kind of fairly about particularly that she went straight into a new relationship with the person that she'd been seeing and, Mm -hmm. um, and because I think part of the problem is that we were all So, cut up with our grief around my dad, everybody reacted very differently with those feelings, did different things with those feelings. And for my mum, she wanted, she blamed him really, she blamed my dad. Yeah, and so she did say some terrible things about him after he died, which I found very, very hard, and I was angry about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And also, she wasn't, I suppose I had an expectation of some kind of support from her. And she wasn't able to give me any support about him. In fact, it's taken us thirty years and a few sessions of therapy more recently to be able to start talking about my dad. Wow,
1: thirty um, years to be able to talk about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, for me to be able to say to speak openly about him and just to, to say what I want to say and to remember him fondly, it's taken a long yeah. time.
1: You, you mentioned that your family each each one reacted differently. and can you tell me a little bit more? I mean, your mom, she, she it sounds like she's silenced about it. She didn't want to mention him. she didn't want to talk about it. and she was angry and she blamed him blamed him for what happened. How about the rest of your family?
0: My sisters, I, I think I was the one who had the kind of the, the you know the most overtly challenging, response to things in terms of suffering mental health problems and one who wanted who probably went off and got the most support in the end the most therapy you know joined the most groups did the most work on myself all, all that sort of stuff and my three sisters have really they've all responded in slightly different ways but i've always had the feeling that they that they've been they've coped and i haven't in some way i don't know whether that's really right or not but that's been my feeling I don't know whether that's because, because they, they haven't entirely dealt with things and they've taken, you know, they, they've kind of bottled things up a bit and just gone with their lives and their families and focused on, on themselves in that way, or whether it's because they've just been, you know, kind of better able to cope with things. Um,
1: yeah. I guess
0: I was the one that was sent off to boarding school when I was eight in our family. And I think... I think there was something, I think that might have made it harder for me in some ways, because I don't know, in some ways I've, I've had, you know, I've been fortunate in that I had a good education, went off to top schools and, you know, did good jobs and stuff and was quite outwardly successful. But in terms of my emotional stability, I think I've been much more vulnerable. And I think my sisters have been much stronger emotionally in many ways and much more resilient. Um
1: mm-hmm. it's very interesting what you say because I'm I'm thinking now looking from the outside someone looking at you I mean you're still very involved with it and you're 30 years later you did a lot of work on yourself you read books you've you are now actually training to be a therapist and it in a way it's kind of a parallel with my situation too it, it hasn't been 30 years with my dad but it has been I don't know 15 16 years and I'm I'm just thinking of people looking from the outside and say, Well, this you haven't dealt with this enough. So it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, how do you know if someone has or not dealt with it? Because grief is ongoing. Grief doesn't end, right? It's not a there's no one word that I really avoid when we talk about grief is closure. There's no closure for, for grief. It's an ongoing process. It gets easier, yes, it does, but it, it's ongoing. So i'm just thinking here thinking out loud that it what you brought up is interesting well what was that is this because i i still haven't dealt with it or is it or maybe they haven't dealt with it because they don't talk about it they, they didn't really dig into it so it, it's individual right you only know really by asking and talking have you talked to them about this have you asked them
0: i think i mean which is i mean an observation on what you say first of all which is that i think trauma is like a cold storage thing it kind of if things happen that are traumatic, they can get lodged inside of you. And it's as though they're kind of ossified somehow and time doesn't matter. And so if you open it up a year later, or if you open it up 20 years later, it just doesn't matter. Actually, it's exactly the same lump of trauma. And if you haven't dealt with it and you haven't opened it up, it will be the same. So that's my belief. Anyway, when I went back to SOBS, um, the kind of suicide support, you know, peer support group, I, I, I found that, that there were things, clearly there were things that I'd resolved inside myself and that, where I had moved on and there were things where I hadn't. And, um, you know, and that, but being in an environment with other survivors and talking openly about these issues brings up a huge amount of, of feeling. It brings up a lot of emotion. And um, the, emo- that, the emotion is what's trapped inside me, I believe, in the trauma. Uh, there's this kind of you know, trap trauma and you know I believe it's how it that, that these situations are kind of dynamic and ever-changing and I don't believe they ever totally go away but they you know but at the same time I mean I know for me that I can open up this thing you know I can open it up in groups I can open it up with family members and it doesn't overwhelm me and know and I feel like I'm kind of okay there's nothing I can't talk about now and there's nothing and there's no one I can't talk to about this Mm -hmm. stuff but it's still you know I think we're a long way away from a point where we can all as a family go out and you know really celebrate my dad's life Mm -hmm. Uh, we've done a few things we you know there's this thing in London uh, called time to change which uh, time to talk I think it is it's a It's an annual event for people who have been touched by suicide in some way. And I went on my own a few years ago. Then I invited all of my sisters to come and my mother. And all of my sisters came with me about two years ago. They did? Yeah. And it was was amazing, actually, that we all came together to to remember my dad. Amazing and very moving. For for the first time almost 30 years on, that we were all together. And my mum still wouldn't come. And I've said to her, I would love you to come. And she says, "Well, I, I wouldn't want you know, I wouldn't want to be there. I would I don't think you'd all want me to be there, <laughs> kind of thing." Yeah. So, um, so there's still some issues there. But I mean, for me, it would be nice if we could all go, and it would be nice if my children could come as well, and we could all just go and celebrate my dad's life in a way that's that's fluid, and where mm-hmm. if there are emotional blocks and if there's things people can't talk about, that the emotion starts to move a bit.
1: You, you talked all... about. Oh, sorry. No, go on.
0: Well, I was just going to give another example. But as a family, we all went and, and climbed a mountain together to raise money for a, a suicide charity, Maytree, um, that I was working as a trustee at. And that was a lovely thing. But actually, we all went and did it together. But I don't think we really all spoke about my dad very much, <laughs> if the truth be, if truth be told. And it's, it's hard with the suicide because I never really know if people want to talk about it or not. Yeah. And, and the truth, And sometimes I want to talk about it but I never know quite what reaction I'm gonna get from the other family members. You know, there are those deep wells of sorrow and everyone I've got to respect other people's ways of dealing with things as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you don't know, and that's the thing with suicide too, you don't know how people will react and people don't know if you want to talk about it. You just mentioned your mom, right? There are so many uh, misunderstandings when it comes to suicide. She, you wanted her to come and she said I didn't I didn't know that you wanted me to come I thought you wouldn't want me to come so there's so many unspoken things too it's one of the things that silences us I think about suicide too is because there are so many questions that we don't ask but we assume right
0: I think the feelings are so strong and there's there's lots of different there's the anger there's the guilt I mean I think because at the end of the day, in a, in a family system where, you know, everybody was really, you know, loving and compassionate and supportive, it would be quite hard for someone to kill themselves. You know, it's, it's only, you know, it's only because we'd all just been getting on with our own lives. And, you know, if, if we'd all been calling dad really frequently, <laughs> and if, if we'd all known quite how low he was... And one of us would have been out there with him or something would have happened. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a nervous yeah. amount of guilt, I think, in, in any yeah. situation. And,
1: and, 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 and the questions that are never answered because you're, you're saying this, but do you really know? I mean, can do you really know that if someone were, was calling, if they were, maybe if I was more present, that's the thing too with suicide, we never know, right? No, we never know, but then life
0: does go on. And, you know, I mean, I've come across you know quite a few people in 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 recovery and in the various groups that i do um, who've been suicidal and who i've had contact with and you know i think i've got a pretty clear idea now that with the right kind of support yeah through
1: it yeah 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 can you can you tell me a little bit more about your experience because you said it was like transformative for you to participate in these groups and in support groups what have you learned from support groups
0: well, I think what I found was that the, the first thing I did was to join up to a charity called Maytree, where I worked as a trustee for a time. And I thought that was a good kind of, I don't know, kind of helpful thing to do, basically. And I thought it would be a good way of giving back something. Um, but what I didn't realize was that I wasn't really taking care of myself. And I'd never really opened up a lot of these issues. And that, whereas I clearly had a lot of empathy for the cause of suicide, and I, and I could understand, you know, people that were suicidal or people that were trying to help, I had, you know, kind of had a lot of experience in that area, I guess. So I had my own experience of it. It wasn't really helping me. And so, at a certain point, I think I realized that actually, I had to take care of myself and work on my own recovery in order to have something to give, in terms of, you know, helping people who were bereaved mm-hmm. or, you know, that, that or so yeah, that that was kind of And then actually, the the you know. T- going off and doing a charity commitment and trying to help other people was actually a form of delusion, really, because I, you know, I wasn't really helping myself. I was just channeling that energy into other people. And um, you know, rather than really allowing myself to get in touch with my feelings about suicide,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and really work on, on, on the deep issues, the deep personal psychological issues, the emotions, the relationship issues, you know, the relationship issues in my family with my mother um, and my sisters and also in, in in the family with my ex-wife and my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first charity commitment I was doing was really running away in some ways from the real issues. So so then going into SOBS was starting to look at the real issues with therapy. But but I just found sitting in a room of survivors, probably, you know, 10 or 12 survivors, and the, the atmosphere in that room is just one of really emotional intensity and we'd, we have a two-hour session and the time would absolutely fly by and I'd literally to have to I'd have to go and lie down the next day for pretty much the whole day I just have yeah. to go lie down just because I, I, so much emotion had been released and you know it's a nice thing to be able to help other people but it's also nice to be allow myself to be vulnerable and to be helped and that was where I struggled I think I found it you know I found it less threatening to try and help someone else than to allow myself to, to, to be helped. And, of course,
1: uh, it's much easier than looking into yourself, right? Yeah. But you fine. know, you were, you, were, you were talking about, well, there was a delusion. It, I don't know, I see it differently. I'm just inviting you to see it differently. It's, it was part of your process. It was because you, you went there and you tried that experience that you got in touch with the fact that I'm not ready for this. So maybe that was the starting point of your
0: healing. Mm. yeah I think I think it's tied into just like a a deeper deeper psychological issues probably from being sent to boarding school at a young age because Mm. at at eight years old what you want is to be at home with your mum and dad basically and but you're told that this amazing thing is happening to you, where you're 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 going to be sent off to this incredibly privileged environment, and it's a big sacrifice, and you know your parents are doing the best thing for you. To,
1: you're supposed to be grateful, right? You're supposed you're to, be to be grateful. grateful. Yeah. yeah. So
0: what happened is, I you know, I learned to have a very thick exterior shell and keep my feelings totally hidden away, and I think that's, that, that, that same pattern played out in the way that I responded to paternal suicide. You know, I was, I was trying to put on a front. I was trying to be okay. I was trying to be okay for everyone else, but I wasn't really doing. I wasn't doing anything for myself. I wasn't thinking, okay, what do I need? What I need is, I yeah. don't, not not to be. I need to be somewhere else.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's inter- um, interesting that you you talked about your father and how traumatic going to boarding school was, but the intergenerational trauma that you know it was repeated with
0: you. Hmm. And my mother was sent as well. And, and when I had a conversation with my mother, when it came up in therapy, that, that just how damaging it had been to me. And I spoke to my mum about it and she was upset to hear that. And then sometime later, she said, actually, actually, I feel the same. See? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's same. amazing
1: when you open the door, right? Things come in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. Well, I am glad that you have been through this path and that you are healing and you're helping others and I'm very very privileged to have you here and to be the first one to hear your story publicly and to share with my audience I'm sure there are a lot of people there. wow I should and that's that's why I bring people like you to the show it's because I want someone if one person is listening and they're saying that sounds like me you know that mask that thick wall I have that thick wall and maybe I should do something about it. And it's totally worth it for me. <clears throat> one, If one person does that, it's been worth it. Thank you so much for participating and for being here with us. I'm going to end by reading something that you mentioned to me. You talked about the bench that you and your family built. Is it, is it up yet? Has it been it will be I
0: think it's probably stuck in COVID, but it will be any time now. Yeah. Oh,
1: everything's stuck in COVID. But anyway, when it is, this is something that you wrote about the bench that you were building in, in honor of your father. You said, the bench is a symbol of how far things have come. I want to celebrate my father's life now, to remember him with dignity and love and allow myself to feel gratitude for all the happy times we had together. I'm so glad you can remember those times. And thank you for sharing them with us.
0: Thank you, Paola. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paola through her website, understandsuicide.com.